stand-up music, that propaganda music, that raise your hand of music. I told y'all be about it. Y'all like I tweeted about it. Don't be so mean about it. I'm down to read about it. You flip that hashtag. You flip that Abby, right? Your fist is in the air. Can't say I'm racist, right? A sword is die for reporter. You kind of with them. Cause most don't notice the system till it turn against them. If what it takes is all of me. I'm still not who I'm meant to be. I'm holding back. I just relax. Indulging insecurities. Sit in the prejudice, it's automatic. I take advantage being born into my demographic. But what's a blessing when it generates a struggle of a color for the privilege of another? <laughs> Participation is great, right? Man, this is a great life. Man, we did something right. And I've struggled with hugging my daughters, knowing homies who can't no more. And enjoying the time I got while living in the tension of the world's imperfection. Locking in on the sovereign reign of the king of all kings. Trusting he'll make right all things. He'll make right all things. Thank you, Pastor Curtis. We so appreciate Pastor Curtis Smith, uh, First Lady Jacinda Smith, uh, Sister Ashley Washington, and the St. Baptist uh, Church for hosting us this evening uh, to have this important conversation. And thank you all uh, who are here live this evening uh, for being here with us. Um, as you know, in episode four, 
We want to have a community conversation with black Christian leaders in Northwest Arkansas and with you, our listeners, about how white Christians in Northwest Arkansas have responded to racism, especially since the death of George Floyd. Now let me introduce my friends. Chris Seawood, Dustin McGowan, Stephen Ivey, and Suzanne Bridges are black Christian leaders who have been active in conversations like this about racism and the church in Northwest Arkansas. And in recent years, Dustin has spent time in a white church, whereas Chris, Stephen, and Suzanne have spent time in a black church. And from these positions, they have seen how white Christians in Northwest Arkansas have responded to racism. So today, I want to ask my friends, one, what they have heard in previous episodes of the podcast, two, how they have seen white Christians in Northwest Arkansas respond to racism, and three, how they want to see white Christians in Northwest Arkansas respond to racism. I also want to invite you all, our listeners, to ask any questions you have. But first, can each of you share some of your story with us? Who are you and why are you here today? Uh, Stephen, can we start uh, with you? Well, first, before we get started, let me start off by um, saying thank you to Lowell and uh, everyone that's responsible for me being here. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I feel like I'm the most unworthy to be up here. Uh, and so I'm like you all that are in the seats. I'm going to be sitting here uh, listening and learning from this great panel. Um, but um, who, who I am and why am I here? Um, so I'm Stephen Ivey. Um, I am uh, a father of four, a husband. Uh, I am a youth pastor, um, a musician, a gospel artist, a music producer, um, and all things to all men when they need it. Um, why am I here? Uh, I have a passion for, for these conversations. I have a passion for telling my story um, and I, I'm just going to say it really quick. Um, it was in Northwest Arkansas, Jasper, that for the first time that I was called here in Northwest Arkansas, that I was ever called a nigger to my face in Northwest Arkansas. Um, in Northwest Arkansas was the first time that I was told to take my black A-double-S back to Africa and called a monkey. Um, and so I'm here because I'm passionate and it did something to my heart because the guy that I saw wasn't a dude that was dressed down and, you know, he didn't look like a, he looked like my CEO. He looked like my boss. And so my heart, <clears throat> when, I, when that happened to me, I said to myself, if a man that looks like him can say that to me, I wonder how many other, and let me be more specific, if a white man like him can say that to somebody like me, I wonder how many other white men that look like him, that look professional, that look um, very put together are thinking that and have those attitudes. And so uh, I'm here to attack the, the systemic racism and oppression um, that we as black people oftentimes face. Sorry I took so long. Um, I'm Suzanne Bridges, <clears throat> um, minister here um, at St. James, used to be on staff. Um, and um, currently um, endeavoring to lead the evangelism ministry. Um, and, you know, like so many others, um, the year of 2020 was such a, um, challenging time, um, filled with so much, um, 
And unlike some other millennials, um, I, I didn't, I never uh, felt that I lived in a post-racial society. Um, and I, and I, I owe that to my mother um, and her educating me. My mother is 73 years old. My dad is 76 years old. Uh, my mother was a part of her high school class that first integrated Fort Smith, um, which is where I'm from. And so, um, you know, being taught at home um, in terms of race relations and my history. Um, and like Stephen, I mean, for a lot of us, we're not from this area where most folks are transplants. Or, and so uh, it, it wasn't until, um, you know, my first year here at the University of Arkansas where I realized that um, growing up, I lived so segregated. Um, for, for those of you who are familiar with Fort Smith, we have North Side and South Side. Um, and I would often get asked all the time, where'd you graduate from? You must have graduated from Southside um, because Southside was majority white and majority of those students went on to go to college, whereas those from Northside, which is where I graduated from, thank God, um, did not go to college. But I did, praise God, and graduated from the University of Arkansas. Um, and of course, as always, in class, I would oftentimes be the only black. I worked at Arvest Bank. I was the only black that worked at that bank. Um, and so even uh, sitting here on this stage being the only female, um, I am used to being uncomfortable. I am used to being the only one. Um, and so again, in, in 2020, it highlighted so much in, in our country, so much in our society that folks have turned a blind eye to, in particular the church. Um, and so um, I was able to observe more so the church's response, um, the local church's response in this area. Um, and so why am I sitting here today? Um, I carry a burden for um, young people, the generations coming up, as well as my own generation, um, that I have seen leave the church, that I have seen leave the faith, um, that I have seen turn to um, African spirituality and cults, um, because they are so traumatized and hurt by the conditions of the society and, and the church's lack of response to that. Um, and so as a result, they have lost their faith in Jesus. Um, and so I, I have that burden um, in which to uh, share Jesus with those who um, have been hurt and traumatized. Uh, my name is Dustin McGowan. Uh, I am uh, from Milwaukee. I'm a husband, uh, my wife Joy, somewhere in the crowd, and three children, Micah, Malachi, and a new one, Mercy, uh, is in our midst today. Uh, the reason, and, and I'm a pastor, church planner, diversity consultant, all types of things, and uh, I've been participating in these kinds of conversations for uh 10, 12 years now, and uh, growing up, I grew up in an overwhelmingly majority black context, and so uh, these conversations weren't really a part of that uh, experience because uh, what's understood doesn't have to be explained. And uh, it wasn't really until I went to college 
um, in the northern Chicago suburbs at a school called Trinity International uh, that I really became, you know, you know, face to face with a lot of the disparity and uh, the reality of living a, a, a different experience than people who are in close proximity to me. Um, but also uh, engaging in that uh, reality within the church. Um, and uh, a really pivotal moment is 2012 for me um, in uh, the murder of Trayvon Martin, uh, when a lot of these conversations uh, begin to really pick up and become more prominent. Um, and many churches begin to uh, pursue visions of multicultural, multi-ethnic churches uh, uh, as a response to that. Um, and, and, and being here 10 years after that event um, and exploring where have we come, not just in the last uh, two years since George Floyd, but in a, a decade since Trayvon Martin um, and uh, many a decades uh, of the history of uh, racial injustice in our country. And we asked the question of where we are as a church, uh, uh, nationally and locally, um, in our response. Um, and, uh, and personally, in my own experience, I've, I've, in my work in this, in this space, I've, have experienced a lot of trauma uh, as a result of the work that I do. Um, and, and struggling sometimes to hold on to the hope of the vision of the work um, but nevertheless, uh, still see that there's a, a very important need uh, for people to participate in the work of restoring that which is broken um, and doing it in meaningful ways. And so uh, I, I just humbled that I, I get to participate in, in that process. Well, good evening. My name is uh, Chris Seawood. I am husband to Miranda sitting back there in the back, and father to three boys, Caleb, Micah, and Joshua. Uh, I uh, also had the privilege for nine years serving here as the director of operations. Uh, I've been a follower of Jesus for, gosh, 28 years, um, ordained a minister in 1998, uh, licensed in, I believe, 2000-something. I'm getting old. It's hard to keep up with numbers. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, why am I here tonight? Partially uh, because my dear friend, and now whom I consider a brother, uh, Lowell, asked me to be here. I also get to share the stage with my dear brothers and my sister um, tonight. I consider it a privilege. Um, also, again, to, um, as I... Honestly, the last few years, as uh, a lot of them have said, but me personally, I found myself not so much in what I would call a crisis of faith, but what I have really considered a deconstruction of my faith, um, really searching and finding what is the essence of faith, what is true faith, what does it truly mean to be a Christ follower, particularly in this context that we find ourselves in, in this uh, particular context in America with so much turmoil, um, racially, economically, uh, with all the injustice that we see 
uh, across America going on. What does it truly mean to be a Christ follower? What does true justice mean? Um, what does it truly mean to uh, see true shalom um, to be brought about um, in this context as Christ followers, as people of God's kingdom? Um, so for me, it's uh, going through this deconstruction phase so that I can reconstruct my faith as I walk through my life daily, as I come in context, uh, in contact with people th with various contexts, through various socioeconomic uh, backgrounds and through various lifestyles and impact their lives so that that true shalom is seen and felt through them and that true love of God is felt and impacted by all. Um, and to come alongside people like Lowell Taylor as they are truly being called out prophetically to go back into a people group and speak truth to their particular context, um, which I believe he's called to do. I can't speak truth to a larger white audience. You all, as much as we're here tonight, there's a particular truth. I can say it, but it may not necessarily be received from me, but there is a particular prophetic call that um, I believe will be received from, um, if we're being honest, there's a, there's a truth that'll be heard from somebody that uh, if you're more familiar with, it'll be more readily received. So, um, so if I'm here and I can help undergird what he's saying so that it's more readily received, then I'm happy to be able to help undergird um, Lowell in that fashion. Thank you all for those introductions. Um, in her book, The Elusive Dream, Corey Edwards writes that interracial churches work to the extent that they make white people feel comfortable. And I think that as a rule, that's true. There are exceptions, um, but as a rule, that's true. Um, Jamar Tisby, in his book, The Color of Compromise, writes, there can be no reconciliation without confession, without repentance, without truth. And so my hope for us tonight is that as best we're able, we tell truths that may make us uncomfortable, um, but that are truths. So that's what we'll endeavor to do together. Um, so now let's talk about what you all have heard in previous episodes of the podcast, and I'm hoping that you listen to them. Uh, as a reminder, in episode one, I introduced myself and previewed the podcast. In episode two, we talked to Greg Thompson about his book, Reparations. And in episode three, we talked to Jamar Tisby about the Witness Foundation, the arc of racial justice, leave loud, a number of things. Um, now, not, not all y'all have to answer this question, but I would love to hear from you all, especially for those here tonight or perhaps listening at a later date who have not heard the episodes. Um, what did you all hear? What do you think is important um, for people in our community to understand? Uh, in, the, in the podcast, Dr. Thompson, uh, he talks about the, the story that he opens his book with um, of, of, about a, a freed uh, slave whose master, uh, former master, writes to him and tries to compel him to come back and to uh, support him as his plantation has fallen into chaos. Um, and the former slave tells him that uh, no matter how much uh, 
love and care he is communicating in word uh, about how he feels to him that uh, in order for him to actually take that seriously, that he needs to be repaid for all of the theft of labor um, that he incurred over his years of uh, working on the plantation. Um, and I think it's vital that we, you know, as you hash out even, you know, that concept of returning what was stolen, um, the sense that uh, do we feel the need as we look about our world, as we see our even our brothers and sisters of Christ to actually make things right, to make things whole, right? Or are we content as long as people say, uh, I forgive you, and moving on as if nothing ever happened? Um, are we compelled that when we have done wrong or seen wrong or have benefited from the wrong committed by others to actually make those things right before I try to initiate the restored relationship with the person? Do I fix what has caused uh, the relationship to be broken in the first place? And I think that's uh, the, the place that we find a lot of our dialogue around racial justice and, um, and uh, approaching the topic of, re of reparations is that oftentimes that uh, we haven't gotten to a place to where we actually want to see things whole, right? We simply want to feel better about our role in the system. And if I've said enough or done enough, to appease my own guilty conscience, do I, can I now be content to keep moving on and not think about it anymore? Versus the person who has said, no, this is really fractured and broken. This needs to be made right. And if it is made right, the restored relationship comes into play, right, as a result of that, um, and not simply uh, the, the guilt alleviation, but it's bigger than that. It's about the person being made right, not me feeling good. That letter um, written by uh, Jordan Anderson and just the, the audacity, right, just the sheer absurdity <laughs> to have um, this slave master who tried to kill him, as a matter of fact, so, you know, tried to kill him, as noted, um, by him um, in the letter to then ask for him to come back because he needs him. Um, and so go out there and read that letter. Um, history is so important. Um, I remember in my youth thinking, um, I hate history. Like, it doesn't matter, right? It, it's not a big deal. I, I want to focus on present day and the future. I don't care about history. Is knowing about history gonna help me in college? Is it gonna help me secure a business job where I make lots of money? I don't think so. Um, and as I've gotten older, um, I have a newfound <laughs> appreciation um, of history. Um, and not just in my age, but 
in my Christian walk. Um, you know, we as Christians read and we study the Bible. Um, and the Bible is filled with history. And we, we don't disregard that history, right? No matter how unpleasant it is, um, it's filled with rape and incest and murders and killings and all sorts of things. But we don't stray from reading the Old Testament or just reading the Bible in, in itself. Yet, for some reason in this country, we want to forget history. We want to um, not acknowledge history, and we want to focus on today and the future. And we do that in the hopes of then I'm not obligated, I'm not accountable for what's being done in the past. Um, and, and so that's the attitude um, that, that I see displayed amongst whites is, you know, I'm not accountable for that, but I am taking advantage of current systems and structures every single day. But I'm not accountable <laughs> for anything in the past. Um, and so, you know, with the discussion of reparations, for those who are so daunted by it and terrified of it and, and afraid of it and are fearful of it, because that's what it is, it's fear, um, you know, starting from just the history and not thinking that it's just, oh, it's just this discussion of black people wanting a handout, because that's not what it is. Um, and so I appreciate um, the book, Reparations, um, written by Greg Thompson and Duke Kwan. I appreciate it and um, I enjoyed listening to the highlights from Greg himself about th the history and, and the reason behind it. Um, and then also providing the biblical context, you know, you know, Zacchaeus, and we're all familiar with that story um, in the Bible. So let's talk about how we have seen white Christians in Northwest Arkansas, especially leaders, folks in the pulpit, not the pews, respond to racism. So since the death of George Floyd in 2020, I have seen eight white pastors respond to racism in three ways. One, the Christian community's response to racism. Two, NWA United, and three, reparations now NWA. To briefly summarize, the Christian community's response to racism was a live conversation between white and black pastors about the church and racism in the summer of 2020. It required white pastors to admit that racism is a problem, but it did not require them to commit their churches to anti-racist action. Four white pastors joined the Christian community's response to racism. NWA United was a statement of unity and 10 commitments agreed to by white and black churches in the fall of 2020. Of note is that commitment number nine was to invest in black Christians both in their churches and in the community. NWA United required white pastors to commit their churches to anti-racist action, but did not require them to submit to accountability for their commitments. Of the four white pastors who joined the Christian community's response to racism, two joined NWA United and two did not. And Reparations Now NWA was an invitation to fund black Christian leaders in Northwest Arkansas with the Witness Foundation in the fall of 2020. 
Reparations now, NWA, required white pastors to submit to accountability for their commitment to invest in black Christians. Of the eight pastors who joined either the Christian community's response to racism or NWA United, two joined Reparations Now NWA, and six did not. In summary, many white pastors have admitted that racism is a problem in Northwest Arkansas. Fewer have committed their churches to anti-racist action, and fewer have submitted to accountability for their commitments. In other words, in my opinion, many white pastors have not practiced what they have preached relative to racial justice. With that, how have you all seen white Christians in Northwest Arkansas respond to racism? Ooh, can I jump on that first? <laughs> um, so, um, I have seen it done very poorly. And I was here, um, I've been here, similar to what, what um, Dustin said, I've been here, I've, I've been here for 15 years since 2011. So I was here when Trayvon got murdered. I was here um, when, when uh, old boy went into the church and shot everybody up. I, I've been here when, I was here when Mike Brown was killed and laid to just sit there. He was publicly lynched and, and laid in the street. I've been here for all of those different times that we've gone through, and each time it's been the same thing. We come together, uh, I think we used to have vigils, and we'd see community leadership come the, the one time, and y'all, I'm, I'm speaking passionately, I'm passionate about this. The one time that we see, and Chris can back me up, the one time that we see white people come to St. James is when something like a Trayvon happens, is when um, the church gets shot up when Mike Brown is murdered, when George Floyd is killed. And we have this great time of kumbaya and we're praying together and we're crying together. Chris tells the story of how a pastor came to his office and sat in his office and wept with him. And that's good. But what I've not seen these pastors in this area do is talk to their congregations and get change. And it's at this point, it's upsetting. When it first happened, you could you believed, okay, they're on our side. They feel our pain. They understand. They're with us. I don't believe that now because I don't see the fruit from the tears. I don't see followed up actions after it. All we do is have kumbaya sessions. And, and again, this is passion. This is not what well, it is, a little bit of anger. But this is passion speaking. What I've noticed from our white brothers and sisters is they want the passive tap on the back, good job, thank you for being here, thank you for showing up and crying with us, and then they go back to their various uh, places of influence and they do nothing. And that is just as evil as, uh, that's just as evil as those that perpetuate the, the actions, in my opinion. 
So I've not seen them do anything. I've, we, we had in this, in, on, in, right here on this stage, we had several, as you alluded, we had several white pastors um, come here and talk and have a panel about racism. And one of the things, and I, I'll never forget this, and you said I could be real, one of the things uh, uh, when I watched this that ticked me off to my core is that we had, I know for sure, one white pastor that admitted, and thank God he admitted it, he admitted that he was scared to address it with his congregation because he didn't want to lose money. Capitalism and the racism that's, uh, and the oppression that's tied to capitalism is killing us. A man can admit on this stage, and the two men come to mind uh, from this stage, can sit on this stage and say, yep, we understand racism is a problem, but we won't address it with our people because we're scared of what we'll lose because we're speaking truth. I said this uh, when George Floyd died, we had a prayer vigil, and Doc Courage allowed me to be the speaker, and I said this, and I don't take it back, and I probably feel more impassioned about it now, that oftentimes... Man, I'm going too far. I think I'm answering another question. But oftentimes, what I've seen in white spaces is that we're not willing to give black folk equal amount of face time unless they're doing music or unless they're teaching you how to cook. But I'm going to stop there. That's, that's my TED talk. <laughs> Amen. I think to, to echo... Onto what Steven said, and honestly, I just have to agree with him. It, it, it is supremely frustrating to the point where you just have to check out because, I mean, I was privy and party to all those conversations as well and to where I just finally had to tell one white pastor, I'm like, don't invite me to another meeting, don't call me, I'm done, I'm out. Because all it was was just kumbaya sessions. I mean, like, I, I get tired of the kumbaya sessions, and he's right, there was one pastor, and if I told you his name, you'd know him immediately, and he showed up to this church one day to my office, and I mean, and he boohoo cried, and I ate a Twix in his face. I'm, I'm just being honest, because it just gets, it gets tiring um, when something happens and somebody shows up on your doorstep or in your face and it just becomes ultimately and I'm not I don't want to question anybody's intent but at some point it just becomes a matter of trying to just you want your guilt assuaged if if that makes sense um, it becomes this act of self-righteousness and as much as um, us as believers, if we call ourselves, and, if, and, and as Lowell alluded to, particularly in evangelical circles, they always tout these gospel issues. Well, if you're supposed to be a gospel believer, we seem to forget real quick what the Bible talks about self-righteousness. And, and quickly, we sometimes, in particularly white evangelical circles, when you run to us, because of the tragedies and the acts of terrorism and violence that have happened in our communities to us and your act is our tears and you want us to come and assuage your guilt feelings and you want to try to now disassociate yourself from the larger white community which is 
I mean, don't think we don't know the game. I mean, it's collective when America is great or America needs to be made great again, but when something bad happens, that ain't me. It's, it's collectivism, individualism, run amok. And we catch the game, we know the game, and it becomes tiring and exhausting, and, and, and you get tired of the act of, these acts of just, at least for me, it's just these acts of self-righteousness. And so time and time, <clears throat> It is a repetitive run back to the black church asking us for a solution to the problem that does not belong to us, right? That, that's what takes place. And then you go back to your white churches and you speak nothing about it. You won't even utter white supremacy because you're too afraid. Um, as Stephen mentioned, when we had that panel discussion, the the Christian community's response to racism. Um, you know, it was alluded to about, uh, or he said it point blank about his fear of losing money. He also said that he was fearful of losing um, relationships and power. That he chose the pragmatic approach because he did, because his idea of helping his black brothers and sisters was to make sure that he kept his seat at the table of people who had money and influence and power. Another comment that I literally made a note in my phone and, and I have never erased it and I, lol, I've shared it with you. I've shared it with you, Dustin, because it just, it was something, uh, oh, it just, it troubled me. And, and the question was asked, well, well, what can we do for you as a black church? And even that question is, I had an issue with. But one of the white pastors responded, we need more grace and mercy. We need more grace and mercy from you all. And I hearken back to this Jordan Anderson letter of this previous slave who, who, who responds to his slave owner who's asking him to come back because he needs his help. Do you see the parallels? <laughs> oh my God. If what it takes is all of me, I'm still not who I'm meant to be. I'm holding back. I just That's all for part one of a community conversation with black Christian leaders in Northwest Arkansas about how white Christians in Northwest Arkansas have responded to racism. You can contact me at reparationsnownwa at gmail.com. Come back for part two next time. Thanks. Suicide. At this point, it's obvious. Close your browser. And young war zone, lose you in Fallujah. I hope you find shelter for them goons come bruise ya. And when the homies gain thrones, boy, it ain't no game, bro. I shouldn't know how a body goes limp when it hangs, bro. But gone, close your browser. The luxury of the option of participation is great, right? Man, this is a great life. Man, we did something right. I've struggled with hugging my daughters, knowing homies who can't no more.
enjoying the time I got while living in the tension of the world's imperfection, locking in on the sovereign reign of the king of all kings, trusting he'll make right all things. He'll make right all things.